we're here today at the offices of the uh, Australian Strategic Policy Institute to talk about uh, a report that came out last year. The report that we'll be discussing is on the private security industry and its role in counter-terrorism. Uh, Safety in Numbers, it's titled, The Australian Private Security Industry's Guard Force and Counter-Terrorism. I have here with me Anthony Bergen, a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and one of the co-authors of the report. Don Williams, an independent security consultant, thought leader and co-author of the report, and Brian DeCary, CEO of ASIAL, or the Australian Security Industry Association Limited, who was partly responsible for bringing this report to light, and myself, John Bigelow, from Security Solutions. Gentlemen, good morning. How are you all? Morning, John. Morning, John. Morning. So, Anthony, perhaps you can sort of kick it off, uh, and everyone feel free to chime in as necessary, but... Tell us a little bit about the report. Why was it commissioned? By whom was it commissioned? How did this whole thing come about? Well, here at ASPE, John, we're, apart from focusing on defence, we also look at broader <coughs> national security issues, including counter-terrorism. And to date, our counter-terrorism focus at ASPE has largely been around, I, I guess you might call it traditional actors, whether that's law enforcement, uh, intelligence, our Five Eyes partners and so forth. Obviously the ADF uh, in extremists. We wanted to have a look at what contribution the private sector makes to counter-terrorism planning and strategy in Australia. It's an area that we felt had been grossly underdone in terms of uh, an examination. Um, This report uh, that you mentioned, uh, Safety in Numbers, focuses purely on the guarding sector uh, of uh, private security and we're well aware uh, that um, the security industry extends obviously beyond the guard force. But... We felt that leveraging the private security guard force for counter-terrorism purposes had not been sufficiently analysed or indeed, if I could put it even stronger, had largely been ignored by our official (coughs) national security planners. So we approached ASIL, Obviously, Brian could talk talk to this himself, but but we approached ASIL as the peak body for the security industry in Australia uh, to see whether it might interest them for ASPE to undertake such a study. And we're very pleased to um, to uh, have our study um, commissioned um, by ASIL. But I should stress that uh, my co-author Don Williams uh, and I, this is an independent study and the judgments we reached are our own. They're certainly not necessarily ASIL's judgment, although we'd hope for the most part they're congruent with ASIL's views, but this was uh, an independent study. So I guess as a start point, uh, and your first question was why study uh, our guard force in the context of counter-terrorism, um, was, I suppose, simply the sheer numbers. Um, the, uh, the fact that our private security industry, around 120,000, uh, with slightly over more than that full-time, uh, dwarfs 
schools, uh, our uh, law enforcement uh, community, uh, police straight, I think, 58,000. Uh, and, of course, the ADF are only about 55,000. So just in sheer numbers, um, we felt this was worthy of examination. It was interesting doing the study. Uh, I think we came to it with uh, preconceived understanding that the security industry, particularly the guarding sector, was not involved in the counter-terrorist planning. I think the big surprise for me was the recognition of how little the government dealt with the private security sector. Uh, their limited understanding of their capabilities and strengths um, and very little respect for what they could offer. Part of that, of course, comes from the fact that the guarding sector is lowly paid often poorly trained, poorly coordinated and uh, managed, and yet they offer an incredible amount of capability. National infrastructure, the businesses of Australia, and even government uh, organisations and, and structures and facilities themselves. Brian? Uh, from an Asian point of view, the, the reason we were interested in, in conducting this report was to acknowledge um, through independent research uh, and create a body of knowledge on what role the industry does actually play in this space. Uh, as alluded to earlier, the industry is often a, an invisible actor in this space. Um, and from an Asian point of view, uh, we believe it's, it's a, a role that the industry performs uh, that should be recognised and and some direction uh, in terms of forging better relationships with law enforcement. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the focus of the report. What was it that you were looking to uncover or what is it that the report does actually uncover? I think a couple of the key findings was, the first one was, was the disconnect between those responsible for planning national security and the providers of the bulk of the manpower who are actually on the streets and in the buildings doing the guarding services. Uh, one quote was that they weren't involved in the planning, they were there purely to provide the manpower. And yet these are the major organisations that in some way or another control 120,000 people. I think the other thing that came out that limits the ability of the guarding sector to provide what they are capable of is the cross-jurisdictional issue. Again, something we were aware of going in, but the breadth of the disconnect between the jurisdictions became more and more apparent the more we spoke to. And we, we spoke to a wide range of, of uh, people across the providers, the users, law enforcement, government, and regulators. And what we found was across Australia, the jurisdictions have different definitions of what is a security guard, different ways of identifying them, requiring licences, fit and proper person tests, uh, the enforcement capabilities and the requirements for training. And um, we weren't even able to come up with an exact number of guards because of the different definitions used by different, defi different jurisdictions. Okay. John, can I just <coughs> make a couple of comments about the threat context, I suppose, um, to set the scene for some of our later 
discussion um, because you ask, you know, what was part of the motivation? I think part of the motivation was a recognition that the terrorist um, threat level um, has been at probable since 2014. It was endorsed as probable again in 2017. We've seen in this country 14 terrorist plots foiled since 2014. We've seen in recent years a number of terrorist attacks in Australia and the modus uh, operandi of these attacks has moved away from complex operations to the use of vehicles, knives, low level, almost you know, seemingly spontaneous, extraordinarily, fiendishly difficult to uncover. So Don and I recognised that in trying to uh, respond and prevent these sort of attacks, we needed to leverage the eyes, ears and hands of the 120,000 Guard Force in Australia. These are the people that are Johnny on the spot, if you like, and that with appropriate training, and we no doubt we'll talk a bit about that, Don's referred to it already, um, that this sector could make a great, great contribution ASIO tells us that um, while we may have plateaued at the moment in terms of the threat level, it's not going down. Um, you know, we've got the issue of foreign fighters uh, returning to Australia. One of the most <coughs> difficult things that our security agencies are focused on at the moment is what they call residual risk. That is people that were, as it were, on the radar, they were on the, 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 the sites of our intelligence and, and policing agencies, but then seemingly uh, there's no need to undertake surveillance. And unfortunately we've had a number of cases, including the case in Melbourne, Shire Alley, where people drop off the radar and then come back and perpetrate a terrorist act. So. Um, this is a very difficult issue for our security agencies because it involves life cycle monitoring of people, incredibly resource intensive. What's that got to do with the subject of our report? I'd argue a lot because, again, it's the guard force that see things, can monitor things, can provide in relevant information to our authorities. So I think it is important to understand that um, while complex terror operations, uh, we're not seeing them, although, of course, the Etihad plot in 2017 that was an attempt to bring down an aircraft with 400 people, very complex plot that was foiled. Um, but most of the attacks, as I say, are, are using more primitive techniques and very, very difficult. So this is just the context I think we need to understand as we carry forth our conversation about the role of the Guard Force. Yep. So, Brian, what was ASIL's role in all of this and, and why did ASIL get involved? Well, as I said before, the security industry plays um, a significant frontline role in safeguarding banks, uh, stadiums, uh, airports, 
major events, shopping centres, cinemas. So these people are on the front line um, and we believe that uh, there needs to be acknowledgement that they have a contribution to make. And I think what we've seen in, in recent months is that law enforcement agencies have acknowledged publicly uh, that there is a role for security uh, as part of a wider response to the threat that we now face. Uh, the police are, cannot do it on their own. So they they are gradually moving to a, an environment where they need to reach out uh, and, and seek help from outside to help this threat because it's such a, a diverse and broad threat. So from our point of view, that's a a significant shift uh, in how things, and as a result, those um, we're seeing police agencies probably changing how they engage with industry, um, from more of a silo mentality to starting to to reach out a little bit. So the information is starting to be a more of a two-way relationship rather than just a one-way relationship. So, from our point of view, we want to try and get an environment where the industry can further professionalise and become a a stronger player in, in safeguarding Australians um, and work with police. So they're not um, adversaries, they're actually allies in this overall um, uh, challenge that we're facing. So that's, from us, it's a, it's a strategic long term. It's not going to be a quick journey, but we believe that you've got to start this collaboration. We, we've seen the first signs of that happening now. Yep. So... I'll, I'll, we'll move into the sorts of things that the report found. And Anthony, I'll just get you to push that mic a little bit closer to your mouth. Yep, that's it. You just, sorry, I'm just going to lean over here. Just bend that in a tiny bit. Perfect. Um, yeah, so we'll move towards the, the sorts of things that the report found. Um, I suppose anyone listening to this from the security industry is going to think, okay, but if you want to integrate the private security industry into the national security infrastructure, we're a long way from that right now. There's obviously a lot of work that would need to be done in order to be able to make that work. So talk me through the sorts of things that you found in the report and, you know, the bridge that needs to be built. What does that look like? Uh, look, I think one of the main findings, John, of our report was that many of the problems for the private security industry in Australia have long been identified. I think it's fair to say um, Don and I didn't necessarily uncover uh, elements uh, of the security industry that others had not examined before. In fact, the Council of Australian Government, over 10 years ago now, um, made a series of recommendations about trying to grip up a more national approach, particularly around areas of training and competencies. But a lot had not been, and there hadn't been a lot of movement in terms of trying to professionalise this industry. So, <coughs> excuse me, one of our chief findings, I suppose, was the need to implement, operationalise a number of the recommendations that have been kicking around for some years, including, of course, from, uh, from Brian's organisation, around issues to do with uh, trying to resolve issues of jurisdictional shopping for, for, yep. uh, for guards. Uh, no doubt uh, we'll talk a bit more about that. But it seemed to me, and, and Don... Is a, is a security professional, so this perhaps wasn't new to him, but it was new to me that um, 
the private security industry in Australia does not have well-articulated pathways for career progression. Um, so one of the things that we tried to do in this report was to come up with some ideas around enhancing the competencies of, of uh, security officers so that there was the possibility of moving uh, in, a, in an orderly way through, through, through the profession. Um, so I guess one of the, the, the main findings was, was really like a, a classic novel. If you haven't read it, it's a first release. In some ways, a lot of the things that we discovered um, and found in the course of this study uh, were problems that had been around for many years uh, relating to, as I say, um, training, competencies, uh, the role of criminal intelligence feeding in to credentials in the industry and so forth. So yep. um, I'm sure Don will have some yeah. more comments around those findings. So Don, this is obviously stuff that you and I have discussed in, in other forums in the past, things like requirements around a national licensing scheme, um, requirements around training and, and ensuring that there is proper... Um, I suppose, uh, sign off on who's achieved what in training and how that's done independently. But walk us through some of the other findings that you're sort of looking at. One of the issues we've seen over many years is the poor training delivered to security guards. It's seen often as, a, as an entry-level employment, easy to get. And one of the quotes in the report is that getting a taxi licence is a step up from being a security guard. Uh, which is unfortunate and that's not the way it should be. Um, some of the major security problems we've seen over the years have been a result of the training providers failing to provide adequate uh, training that meets the requirements of the licensing authorities. We looked at a couple of federal models where training is provided but then uh, reviewed and um, evaluated by a federal authority and the uh, security training licences for aviation and maritime fall into that bracket, but also maritime licences some, in some areas and aviation licences. The training can be provided by others, but is validated by a federal authority, ensuring that these competencies and capabilities are delivered as required and that people are fit to do the job. If we have a model like that, we should overcome many of the training problems where we have people licence shopping between jurisdictions, go where it's easier and quicker to get a licence and cheaper than have to sit down and actually do proper training to get the skills required to do the job. So, so you're suggesting a, a model whereby we have all of the registered training authorities or training organisations, but they don't administer their own tests. People who then pass through those training organisations have to either have an external examiner come in or they go to a central location and sit the exam under the auspices of... Some, how, does, how did you envision that working? I don't think we got quite to the level of, of detail, but either that where the training is done by one organisation and the testing is centrally coordinated, however it's delivered, by a federal monitored body, or where the 
federal body has the authority to go in and oversee critically the training. Now, that's what's supposed to be happening under our current federal training system, but we know it's not working in that it's taking too long to identify the, the bad trainers and to have them investigated and then eventually, if necessary, the, their license is revoked and the, the training they've delivered disqualified. But yes, a federal method of, or a centralised method of ensuring that all testing is done to the right standard um, and that the people at coming out the other end do have the capabilities we need. Brian, I know this is something that ASIL has been sort of looking at for a long time, how we can improve training and in improve the quality of training. What are your thoughts on this? A few goes back probably to 1996 with the Police Commissioner's Conference where we believe there needs to be uniform and consistent licensing standards between jurisdictions. Uh, so that covers probity. So there should be the same probity requirements for every jurisdiction at the moment. Uh, it varies from state to state. So in some jurisdictions, you can work in the industry with a student visa, uh, and others you can't. Uh, in some jurisdictions, there's uh, the use of criminal intelligence. Others, there's not. Uh, others have real-time tracking of, uh, of people's uh, convictions. Others don't. It's just a period in time. So from our point of view, there needs to be a consistent approach for the probity requirements for someone entering the industry. Um, and there also needs to be consistency in the units of competency they do uh, undertake to, to get a license. Um, encouragingly, the review of the training package that was completed at the end of last year or early this year has come up with 14 consistent units of competency across all jurisdictions. Uh, so when that comes into force, hopefully later this year, uh, there should be 14 consistent units of competency across all jurisdictions. So there is a, a step in the right direction. Uh, it also will include uh, within those training uh, delivery modules, uh, literacy, language and numeracy requirements. So we will not have the situation where people who cannot speak English will, will get through and receive a certificate and complete a test that's in English um, who are unable to communicate and uh, f complete the test in English. So um, I think there's there's some encouraging steps on the training side. I think from the, the regulatory side, uh, we're probably going to have to have a couple little hops to get to our ultimate position of a national license uh, because I think the jurisdictions will not want to give up or cede power to regulate in each state. Um, but I think ultimately that would be our aim. But uh, I think there will be some... Inter intermediary steps that we'd have to get to, but certainly having consistent licensing criteria, consistent, consistent licensing types, uh, consistent training and assessment of the trainers, so the quality that uh, that people undergo. I mean, we our view is there should be you know 130 hours of auditable training, which is a significant period of time, um, and that is a, a a bit of a step up in some jurisdictions, um, and that compares significantly higher than when you look at places like the UK where it's only a matter of days of training that they have to do. So we would like to see the industry professionalise further um, and we don't want to make the barriers to entry too high. But as an entry level requirement, we think the Certificate 2, which has been amended and about 130 auditable hours of training is a, a suitable entry level uh, requirement for the industry. John, could I just sure. come, come in here because Don and I spent a bit of time in this report talking about the need to incorporate 
um, terrorism or counter-terrorism training inside the um, courses that the guards are receiving. Um, we found this is uh, done in the case of the in the United States and also in the UK, but it seemed to be lacking in the in the training in, in Australia. That is recognising uh, suspicious behaviour associated um, with pre-incident terrorism activities. And yeah, because I was going to say, can you just outline and explain for people listening to this? what you mean by counter-terrorism training? Because there are probably going to be people out there right now who are envisioning Jack Bauer running around, you know, shooting at terrorists. What, what do you mean by counter-terrorism training? I'm talking about observational techniques and reporting uh, lines uh, to relevant counter-terrorism authorities. So, of course, some of the training about suspicious behaviour is going to be very similar to yep. monitoring criminal activities. I mean... One of the one of the developments, for example, in the United States that I was looking at recently, there's now a whole training package for private security uh, industry and people in the hire car industry around suspicious behaviour around hiring vehicles. Okay. So this is something that uh, when I talk about counterterrorism training, of course it's got dual functions and dual dual uses. Yep. Um, but um, I think there are particular uh, training requirements around observational techniques that can be can be incorporated. Um, look, I I just go back to um, uh, you, you know your question about the findings. What surprised yeah. me. Now, this will be absolutely no surprise uh, to you, John, or or, um, or, um, or Brian, or, or uh, Don, Don Williams, but I found it very surprising that users of security industry are so totally focused on, on cost, the lowest cost, mm. and not looking at value. And I think we should talk a little bit about that because I think one of the problems, if we're going to try and professionalise uh, this sector, uh, particularly in the national security context is the need for users to recognise the different um, levels in the industry. We found some fantastic companies, incredibly professional, but we also realise that um, uh, there are problems at the, at the lower end um, and often that's driven by users um, going for low, the lowest cost solution. Yeah, well look, and anyone else feel free to jump in here at any point, but I know that from the security managers within large corporate organisations that I've spoken to in the past, this is a bugbear because they do a lot of work to try and remove as much of the risk as they possibly can from their organisation, but then procurement departments within the organisation insist on driving for the lowest possible cost as far as security, which then reintroduces a whole range of risks into the organisation because... In no other situation is the old adage, you get what you pay for, possibly more true than it is in the provision of security services. So we have this situation where security managers want a certain standard of service, but procurement departments and accounting departments within the organisation are saying, no, you need to shave an extra couple of points off that particular quote. So let's talk for a second around, you know, what needs to be done as far as changing that, because... Really, it, the the cheapest quote, you know, uh, the the example I always use when discussing this with other people is, do you really want to buy the cheapest parachute? 
there are a couple of issues that, that come out of this. One is that guards are expensive. They may be amongst the and possibly the lowest paid people in the building. Um, sometimes lower paid than the cleaners, but the cleaners are only on site for a couple of hours. Guard can be 24-7, and that starts to add up on an hourly rate. You get more than one guard, it starts to add up a lot. So they are an expensive commodity. But something that's in all of the security media on of every year is selling security. Trying to convince the procurement, the C-suite, that security is there to protect the assets and functions of the business. We have assets and functions that are worthy of protection. There are people out there that want to take and damage them. Security is the barrier in between. And if you don't think they're worth protecting, then buy the cheapest one. If you think that they're worthy of it, then you need to be willing to pay a little bit more for some people that are actually trained, competent, can communicate, can observe the unusual behaviours, whether they be criminal or politically motivated, the people who are doing the reconnaissance of the site, the people who are measuring the front door width to see if they can drive a car through it, based on a true example, and then know how to report it. But if you don't want to pay for that, you'll end up with the people who are just sitting there checking passes, hopefully, as people walk through. Um, it is really a matter of value for money. And what was annoying was to find that it's not just corporations but government entities who are paying rates that must be below award rate. So not only are they getting the cheapest, they're paying an illegal amount for it. Brian, you're looking perplexed. Well, you? <laughs> I, I think what really is required is a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of the user's approach to security. A lot of the people look at it as a grudge purchase, so they know they have to have it. So they have it, but they just uh, try to get the best value, which is fair enough, but it's uh, that's become a euphemism for the lowest uh, possible cost. So I think you, you've seen the report that came out last week, which was the the Migrant Workers Task Force, which identifies security as one of the areas uh, where there's vulnerable, uh, workers vulnerable to underpayment of wages, uh, and that's proposed a, a federal labour hire uh, licensing system, which... Um, which would make uh, the hosts or the clients uh, responsible to some extent in terms of what the individuals are getting paid uh, through their suppliers. Um, so I, I think there needs to be a, a shift in the mentality of people because if you want to get a better quality of service, uh, you have to attract better quality people. Um, and there is a yeah, is the, it, it, there is a shift. Some purchasers uh, are aware of that. Uh, and they will pay a premium for good service. What happens is if where things go wrong, procurement have to then explain the damage to the brand to the company, where they've taken a shortcut and gone for a very cheap option. The, the reputational band brand of that government department or organisation is damaged. So it's not just the assets that are damaged or stolen, it's the corporate um, brand which will be damaged if they have cut corners and there have been some companies who have uh, and government agencies. Um, we undertook with uh, Fair Work Ombudsman uh, an inquiry into local government procurement and, and that found 61% I think was the figure of non-compliance within local government. Um, so there needs to be a shift um, and one of the areas in this uh, uh, vulnerable workers report was is there's a thing called Section 550 accessorial liability where 
uh, where underpayment of wages, you, it's not just the employer, but the client who should have known that there's no way that the, the provider could have paid wages in accordance with the award, uh, let alone make their own costs, uh, they may be joined to a, a penalty as well. So, so again, it's a, it's an area that I think needs some attention. If, if, if we are putting more and more responsibility on the role performed by these private security personnel, and we expect them to be the front line, uh, you know, that they're there to you know, observe, uh, deter, detect, and report. Uh, they're on the front line. If we expect them to protect your building and assets and people, uh, you've got to remunerate them properly. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get the, the quality that you need. So I think some companies and some government departments get it, but if there's still quite a few that need to, to get on the program, that quality does come at a slightly higher premium. John, could I just add, you asked earlier <coughs> what was surprising. It may not have been surprising to, um, to Brian or Don, but I was very surprised that student, people on student visas in Australia are allowed to be security guards. Mm, well, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is potentially a topic for an entirely different podcast, but one of the things that you highlighted in the report um, was that there's really only one of the major security providers in Australia at the moment uh, who is still owned onshore, and most of the other security providers are all owned by offshore entities, which then you combine that with um, the fact that overseas entities are owning and operating security companies that are charged with looking after sensitive sites and all the rest of it, which in of itself might not be a problem, but then you have students who are working in the industry that aren't necessarily highly qualified. Then you combine that with the fact that the literacy and language skills in some of the registered training organisations aren't particularly well policed. And all of a sudden we're starting to get a better picture out of the report that perhaps we have a very long bow to draw before we get to a point where we might actually be able to integrate the private security industry into a national security infrastructure. Uh, sorry, Don, you look like you're about to sort of jump in there. It is true that it is a low-paid, easy access industry. And there are examples of people who can't speak English, who are there purely standing on a, on a corner, not actually doing anything useful, and getting paid minimum award, if not if, if that. There are also a lot of good security guards who are very capable and competent who take ownership of the sites where they work and when the contracts change, they turn up the next day wearing a different uniform, usually for slightly less pay or having to buy their own lunches or something because that's the way the, the company shaved the, uh, the contract fee down. But there are a lot of good, dedicated security people out there who, who take pride in what they do mm. and do seek to protect the assets with which they've been entrusted. Yep. Uh, so we need to migrate from the quite valid perception that there are very poor security personnel and, and migrate the users, the employers, the clients, the government and law enforcement, national uh, security planners to recognition that there are good people and we need to get rid of the dross and keep the good people and encourage them to work and grow in the field. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, I know that this is something that ASIL has done a lot of work around in the last sort of, you know, umpteen decades of, of trying to sort of promote the security industry as being 
better than that which it is seen as publicly. But one of the things that came out of your report was that you suggested the formation of an entirely, I won't say an entirely different body. Well, it is a different body because ASIL is the Australian Security Industry Association. You're talking about a security industry administration or, or, or something that sits above all of that to try and manage all of these concepts out of the report. Can you tell me a little bit about that, a security industry authority? Yes, certainly, John. I, I, I will respond to that. But just, I do want to pick up the very important point that you made uh, about foreign ownership um, of uh, the security guarding services. And you, of course, you're absolutely right. Um, that the major providers now are overseas interests. I guess a couple of points to make. One is that for many years these companies have been employed um, to, to uh, guard some very sensitive sites, particularly defence facilities, airports uh, and so on. And as you identify, I guess one of the concerns here is potentially um, foreign ownership might provide access to sensitive information, equipment and so on. I think my response to that is that, look, there are mitigation strategies around... I, 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 we're not naive. Of course, there are some risks associated with that. But, um, you know, installing Australian managers um, in extremists, I suppose it's always up to, to uh, uh, a company to, or the owner to uh, set up and employ their own guard force if, 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 if yep. it's required. Um, but I do take your point that, as we argue in the paper, there should be a, a greater uh, integration around national security between the private sector uh, companies and, um, and government. Um, there, there are issues around foreign ownership, uh, but I, I do think that these can, with appropriate risk mitigation strategies, um, be, be managed. And to that point, there's been no evidence anywhere thus far that there's any sort of foreign interference or problems with that. I mean, as you pointed yep. out, there are Australian teams, Australian managers and all the rest of it. It's simply an issue to be aware of, but no one's suggesting that there's anything around that that should be a cause for concern. Concur. Um, there's no evidence of that. And as I say, um, <laughs> if, if, if an owner, uh, and I'm talking about a government owner, uh, felt that um, there were particular risks, then, of course, they can uh, set up their own guard force. Look, in, in response to your question about the Security Industry Authority, I guess that's really the headline um, for our report because it, it, is, it is the nuclear option, I suppose. Um, uh, and I think we sh I should explain why we've come to that um, recommendation. Sure. I think, as I said earlier, that this is an area, i.e. professionalising the private security industry that's been around a long while. And essentially, it's been a state-based approach with very light coordination from the Council of Australian Governments, very light indeed. And we felt that we had stuffed around with this issue for so long that it was time to really grip it up at a national level. Now, you know, a number of people said to us, Don, Anthony, you are completely uh, bureaucratically over-egging this. 
by suggesting a new statutory body. But I think our judgment in the end was that the incremental state-by-state approach, and I do not want to diminish what um, Brian said, that there are good things happening with the Education Department signing off on those 14 competencies and, and so forth. There are good things happening. But I think we judge that um, a national approach around issues to do uh, with fit and proper person definition, training, development and monitoring, ex- external confirmation of testing and competencies, uh, the development of CT awareness and training information, all these areas were best done by establishing a dedicated statutory body. And the, we chose a, the legal status for this authority very carefully as a statutory body, not simply a division within a government agency. Statutory authorities, I'm sure your listeners are aware, are created to allow that authority to undertake measures beyond the life of a particular government that might be politically sensitive, that might be subject to political interference, to allow them independence and to have a strategic approach to an issue. So we thought, yes, uh, it should be a statutory authority, but it would answer to the Minister for Home Affairs, okay, Uh, ultimately. But with normally with a statutory body, the, the minister allows an enormous range uh, of discretion to, to, to this body. So I think, um, yes, at, at one level people could say this is a over-egging, uh, it's an over-solution, if I can put it like that, to, to the problem. But as I say, this is the, the, the incremental state-by-state uh, approach uh, with almost hardly any federal uh, intervention in this area I think hasn't necessarily got us into a good place but as I say I acknowledge what Brian said that there are things positive there are positive developments but I think going to the <laughs> the nuclear option if I can put it like that I yeah. think is warranted um, otherwise we, we we might be having this same conversation in another 10 years but Brian what are you what do you think is, is going to be the government's appetite for that kind of thing? Because a large part of ASIL's powers in years gone by has been borne by the government wanting to divest itself of responsibility for overseeing and managing the security industry and saying to people like ASIL, here, you do it. Um, you know, so what then happens when we're, we're looking at a report that says, no, no, this needs to be given back to the government and the government needs to take a bigger hand in this? Well, I suppose the pendulum has swung a bit. There was a period when there was co-regulation, then self-regulation, then back to regulation. I think um, given the role that the industry plays, certainly the providers of security need to be, uh, have to go through obviously the appropriate checking and um, and the individuals need to go through it. Now, whether, yeah, whether we can line up all the jurisdictions, I think one of the issues we have is in some jurisdictions it's policing that, uh, the police forces are the ones that actually regulate and look after the industry. In others, it's a fair trading or the business area. So there are slightly different approaches to how they regulate the industry. But from our point of view, um, companies that operate across borders nationally, it makes it uh, far more logical if there was a consistent national approach so they don't have to have eight compliance regimes to do essentially the same thing. Uh so from our point of view, uh, 
having consistency and uniformity across all jurisdictions makes a great deal of sense. If you look at what's happened in the UK, I think about a decade or so ago, they 18 years ago maybe, they introduced their sort of licensing scheme for security individual individuals. They don't actually uh, require the companies to be licensed. So in that regard, we're way ahead of them. Um, but I think, yes, yeah, certainly having the ability for companies to go across borders without having to have eight licenses uh, across jurisdictions, for our point of view, uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, and it makes for continuity between service delivery. So you have a, a national standard, not, not a standard that varies depending on which state you're in. Um, and we're seeing that the states are gradually realising that, but some are way behind other states. So some states are by far ahead in terms of how they regulate and are much more stringent. Others are still catching up. Uh, some states don't regulate the electronic sector. They don't see that as a risk. Others do. To us, that's that's in, we need that to be consistent. You can't have uh, the electronic sector regulate in one area and another state doesn't see it's a threat. We believe they all should be checked and, yep. and probably checked and, and appropriately licensed. So we keep coming back to this sort of 8,000-pound gorilla in the room, which is national licensing. I mean, Don, as one of the co-authors of the report, how do you see that coming into being? Because we all I, I don't think there's anyone in the industry who would disagree that we desperately need a national licensing model. But it's a really, really nice source of funding for all the state and territory governments that they're not going to be in a huge rush to give up. And when it comes down to, when you boil it down to its most basic essence of, will this help me get elected or stay elected from a government's point of view? How do we make this issue or do you foresee out of the report a way that we can make this issue or bring this issue to the attention of the government in such a manner as to make them say, yes, this needs to happen? There's... Two parts to that, I think, and, and one I'll come back to, which is the you asked before about how we can integrate the guarding sector and national security now, and, and I'll come back to that, and that would be part of, of the answer to the first question. The main part, I think, uh, is that there's been suggestion that the states won't necessarily want to give up licensing. I'm not convinced that's true. Yes, that's a big income for them, but it is also an administrative burden. And as Brian said, different states manage it different ways. Sometimes it's in with policing, and in which case security licensing is seen as a blister on job, looking after the guarding sector, something not particularly relevant to, to law enforcement. Uh, in others, it, it's fair trading and or people yeah, like that. Uh, that yeah, I think it. in Tasmania, it's the Department of Weights and Measures or something. I mean, seriously? <laughs> Interestingly, Tasmania also specifically excluded consulting uh, requiring a licence, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, and that's a good example. Yeah. Uh, whereas others have various different definitions of what a consultant is and does and why they require a licence and what training they need. Yeah. And in some states, it's to do with the ability to design an electronic security system, something some of us don't do. But whether the states would be willing to give it up, particularly if a federal model returned some of the funding to the states for oversight and uh, validation to ensure that it was occurring. And Anthony will speak to this, but I think that has, happens in a couple of other areas where it's federally managed, but the states monitor it. 
So there may be an ability to, to pay some money back. Um, it would certainly reduce the administrative burden in the states. It would certainly reduce the administrative burden on both the regarding companies and the employees um, who are required to hold states in different license, sorry, hold licenses in different jurisdictions, and particularly if they live in a border area and have to flip backwards and forwards across. Um, so you've got somebody who's not particularly well paid owning multiple licenses. And if you're in the consulting game, you basically need to hold a license in every state. And get your fingerprints and everything else done in all of those various states as well. Which requires you to travel interstate because they won't necessarily accept prints taken in another jurisdiction, believe it or not. And it would also, I suppose, a national licence or a national approach also um, is beneficial when you have major events or major incidents uh, in terms of the movement of personnel. So if you look at the Commonwealth Games where there were about 4,500 private security personnel required, uh, a large proportion of those people were from interstate, so they had to be mutually recognised to get their licence in Queensland to be able to work for two two weeks, and then they had to fly back. So uh, having that capability that could be moved around wherever the, the threat arose uh, is a lot more powerful than having to, to then go through a process of re-accreditation to go and work in that state. But I, th I, th I think we're pretty much singing to the choir to everyone who's going to be listening to this. I mean, we all understand that if there's a national licence, then all of a sudden we have a national register of licensed security personnel. And then we have a national library of what qualifications all of those security personnel have. So therefore, when it comes to surge capacity and surge requirements, we can very easily plan for that. But the question then becomes, and I'll direct this to you, Anthony, um, based on what Don was saying about the funding and being returned to some of the state governments, how do we move to that? How do we get from where we are now to where we need to be if you can actually answer that question, because you'd be about the only bloke in Australia, if you can, that actually can. Well, in terms of um, what Don was saying about uh, the, the approach of the states to perhaps resisting um, the, the, the move towards a more national approach, I think he's right that there are resource uh, incentives for, for the current regime, but... Don was absolutely right. Our report suggested that some of the money could be returned, <coughs> excuse me, for um, compliance training um, and just general monitoring of of, um, of, uh, of competencies and, and compliance. Now, the analogy that um, I'm not sure whether we put it in the report or not, but the analogy here um, is with the Australian Maritime Safety Authority that regulates um, the um, commercial. Uh, shipping in Australia and there were until I forgot but within the last five years anyway there were state-based um, licenses for small commercial craft the government decided this was a bit of a schmozzle and ended up having now a national AMSAR does national registration of commercial uh, shipping craft but it's returned money to the states to in, uh, to undertake the compliance uh, of, of that particular uh, uh, regime. So that that was the analogy. Now you've asked <laughs> what would be the political, um, how how would we get from where we are now to what Don and I have suggested a national approach? Look, ultimately that would be a matter for. Um, I think COAG, to, to put this issue back on the COAG agenda. Um, 
I think it would absolutely require the cooperation and the collaboration of all the jurisdictions to, to, to move to that approach. Um, so, you know, COAG, COAG doesn't necessarily have a great track record in this area, but it's the only, it's the only um, device, if you like, institutional device that would allow that conversation, I think, to take place. And I would hope if it came back on the COAG agenda, ASIL would have a view, not necessarily to agree with this approach, but I'm sure ASIL um, uh, should be at the, at, at, at the COAG uh, table making strong representations about how to professionalise uh, th th this uh, vital sector for Australia. Well, we got close in 2008. Mm. We got it in front of COAG. We got it almost across the line and then you know, the planets for some reason fell out of alignment. Given that we're moving into a, a, an election period where it looks like, you know, it could potentially foresee a change of government and possibly no longer a Department of Home Affairs. I mean, Brian, how do you see this playing out? How how do we get it in front of COAG and how do we actually get them to move forward with it? And it's not like I'm sure you haven't probably been bashing your head against this wall for the last God knows how many years. Well, I suppose the, the way we've tried is, I mean, by supporting reports like this is to shine a bit of light on what's actually happening out there uh, and make it aware to government that this is an issue. Um, and I think there, there are other reports that are coming in the, in the coming months which are looking at this very same topic. So I think it's it's trying to make people aware that this is something that's out there. There's 120,000 plus individuals working in this area, uh, safeguarding people on a daily basis. So. I think it's it's trying to build the momentum uh, across federal and state government, but it's it can be difficult because you have changes of government and you have dif different priorities. But it's got to be evidence based. We're not just doing it because we think it's easier for the industry. It's actually a, we think it'll professionalise the industry further yeah, rather well, than taking it backwards. I suppose to uh, shadow police ministers right now and shadow defence ministers, the hundred and twenty thousand—that's a big voting block. Listening, hearing, listening to this. Uh, Don, you want to say something? I think we're talking about uh, pushing from the states, but also there's a pull factor as well, and that's in the concept of national security. We've talked about the fact that we need to be able to move these people who are trained in security across jurisdictions when we need them, sometimes with months and months of planning, years of planning, sometimes on short notice. And at the moment, we can't do that. These are more and more a concept of, of total defence where we really understand that protection of the corporate sector is part of protecting Australia. These are the people that are doing that. These are part of our national security capability. And at the moment, there is huge disjunction across the jurisdictions. We don't have any confidence in who's being trained, who's being selected as fit and proper. We don't have a career progression for these people and yet they're the ones we rely on to be the, the face of securing Australia. The only way we can really fix that, is, as argued in our report, is through a centralised coordination. Yep. That is a national security issue. Yep. Can I just say, John, maybe a bit outside the scope of um, our report, but you're the one that introduced it. You, you made the comment that after the election there may not be a Department of Home Affairs um, and it's important to, to address it because our report recommends the statutory authority be responsible ultimately to the Minister for Home Affairs and you're, you're suggesting that, um, the, that that structure may go. 
look, we won't have long to wait, but my guess is I think that's unlikely. I think there may be elements, if there was a change of government, that might be uh, moved from Home Affairs and there's been speculation in this town whether there may be, for example, a separate Department of Immigration again. Uh, there's been speculation that ASIO, now under Home Affairs, may revert to Attorney Generals. There's been speculation that the Australian Border Force might become a separate agency. So, well, I hear you, what you're saying. You're speculating that, that if there were to be a change, that the department itself may disappear. I think that's unlikely. I think a, a Labor government will probably keep the structure... But, as I say, there may be elements of that department that, that may be moved. Yep, fair enough. Look, in closing, it, it would seem... Um, well, it would seem Dom's just put his hand up and wants to ask a question. So, <laughs> go for it. One thing you mentioned before is what we can do now to yeah. integrate the guarding sector with national security. Yep. And I think the answer to that is mutual uh, understanding and, to some degree, mutual respect, uh, which needs to be earned. And at two levels. At the local level, the police need to understand what guards are trained to do and what their legal entitlements are and their boundaries are, where they can and cannot operate. Can they set foot outside the door onto the footpath to crowd control, yes or no, these sort of things. And there has been a reticence from most police forces to talk to the security industry and understand what their roles and capabilities are. South Australia is an exception to that we know of, where they do get ASIO to come and speak to their police courses at the, all levels, I understand. Um, and perhaps other police forces should follow that and find out what the 120,000 people across Australia are capable of. On the other side, the guards need to understand what the police require of them and what sort of information is of value, how they report it and how it will be treated, and what capability the police have when they step on to the property managed by the guards. At the higher level, at the, at the highest level, there needs to be interface between the owners of the major security companies, the people employing the 120,000, and the national security planners. Mm. I, I think, sorry, go on, uh, Anthony. John, I just wanted to add, um, and I think it's quite important. I mean, Brian was talking about that there are positive things happening in this space that we're talking about now. That's law enforcement, security and, and the private sector. I concur with that. Um, but I, I'll just note one thing. Last year that the, the government um, set out a, a new strategy for protecting crowded um, mass gatherings and as a result of that strategy, there's now being established, in some cases they're already there, crowded places, forums in our major capitals. But to my disappointment, in, when I've looked into this, the private security guarding sector aren't actually represented mm. on these crowded places, forums. So, I mean, yes, the owners are. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, key infrastructure along the along the malls and shopping centres and all that. But the actual, as I say, the eyes, ears, and hands, they're not they're not represented in these crowded places forums. Um, and look, the other thing is you haven't um, you haven't asked us one question. But a lot of people, when we were doing this study, said, oh, so you want you want all the guards to be armed, do you?" 
Why, why would they ask that? Because they think of counterterrorism and correct, yeah. okay. correct. So they thought, oh, so here's this government-backed think tank with support of the uh, industry association wanting to put a gun on every in every shopping mall uh, security guard. Um, look, we address that in the report, and um, short answer is no. We're not recommending more guns on the streets or anything like that. We didn't think that that was helpful. I think we made a recommendation. Remind me, Don, that uh, uh, guards be allowed to use uh, cuffs mm-hmm. um, because of the, the risks of sort of positional asphyxia and so forth. So cuff, cuffs we thought were a good idea, but our report, I just to underline it for your listeners, does not recommend um, that um, we arm... I mean, some guards, of course, for, for uh, are allowed to, to, to carry weapons when... when um, uh, protecting money and in fact I remember one company said to us well if we can use guns to protect money can't we use guns to protect people um, which is a, yeah, that's a, a, a fair a, question a, I suppose it is but it's a different sort of debate but yeah yeah so anyway I just yep. wanted to make the point that uh, and Don I'm sure we'll have some extra views on this but we we didn't recommend Don for, for sound reasons right that uh, we, we militarise uh, <laughs> The guards. As you said, uh, more guards on the streets was not seen as being helpful and there are already processes in place that if a security person requires a weapon, they can go through the mechanism which usually goes to the Commissioner of Police for approval and that already exists. Yeah, I mean, look, my understanding is in, in talking about incorporating private security into the national counter-terrorism infrastructure, you're talking about a watch report and observe type infrastructure, not first responders dressed in black pyjamas, roping down the sides of buildings and kicking in windows. We we already have people who are very, very good at that sort of thing. And we will already have a lot of people in the security industry who think they do that sort of thing. So we don't really need to encourage that. I mean, a practical illustration, if you look at the, the London Bridge uh, borough market attacks in 2017, you know, there was one particular pub where the security personnel saw the people acting in a suspicious way they locked the doors of the of the of the pub and protected tens of you know tens of people in that particular venue from uh, from getting injured it then meant that the attackers went somewhere else uh, so that's just a very simple they they just did a quick risk assessment said this doesn't look good another example is if you look at the stade de france uh, a security uh, screener people were screening people into the venue the, the deterred one of the would-be attackers who basically didn't get into the stadium and detonated the device elsewhere. So so the, the, we're not talking about a, 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 a new force. We're just talking about using the force that's there uh, and engaging with them and actually just having interaction with them, which is probably what we can do now. That, that, that can start now. We just need to have that dialogue with law enforcement to start to work that... that uh, a bit of trust starts to develop between the two sides, and over time, we hope to develop into much more uh, collaborative and uh, positive engagement. I think that the the signs are encouraging, so it's not all doom and gloom. Mm. We're heading in the right direction, but uh, and a lot of these things are very simple, practical steps. Um, but you've got to start doing it. It won't just happen on its own, um, and we need to get buy-in from a range of different organisations and, and and bodies. It it seems we're almost sort of um stuck in this chicken or the egg type conundrum of 
what comes first? Do you develop a security industry authority in order to take control of all of this, to give the police and law enforcement confidence that it's being managed properly so that they'll take the industry seriously? Or do you get police to take the industry seriously so that government then goes, okay, we need to put in place a security industry authority and make national licensing? I mean, it's always been, for me, an interesting conundrum that police see security on some level as almost a threat. And I say that in the context of it's a threat to police numbers and therefore police union powers. Oh boy, watch the YouTube comments at the bottom of this. Um, because they want members and they want numbers and they don't want to necessarily outsource some of these non-essential policing roles to private security. But from a purely taxpayer-funded point of view and from an expediency point of view and from a point of priority policing point of view, there are a lot of jobs being done right now that don't need to be done by police that could be outsourced to private security. But that brings up this whole dichotomy of why the police won't take the private security industry seriously is about more than, to my mind, and I'm happy to take comment from any of you on this in closing up, but the police don't take the private security industry seriously, A, because it's not just the training that's provided, but B, they don't view the security industry as a carpenter views his hammer, which is they're a tool to be used. They view the security industry as that's an embuggerance that impedes on our potential numbers that then can impact police union. Uh, anyway, that's a... Is anyone going to be game enough to touch that? <laughs> uh, well... We certainly found, um, in terms of um, interviewing many security industry companies, uh, that the views that um, you've just set out were shared, that um, in terms of the company's attitudes, or th their understanding of how law enforcement uh, viewed them, there was a definitely a sus levels of suspicion um, and... Uh, the fact that, um, as you say, for many of them, they've made the point that, look, potentially <laughs> we could undercut some of the work the police do in terms of outer hours, protective security, etc., where they're paid. Mm. Um, so I think that's right, but I, I do come back to Brian's point. I think, um, I think the attitudes are changing on both sides and there are structures like despite my, my earlier comments, that there are structures like these Crowded Places forums where gradually there is beginning to be an understanding of, uh, from, from law enforcement security about uh, the, the, the positive contribution that um, the private sector can make in this area. Um, but Don's had a lifetime uh, working uh, on both sides, as it were, for, for law enforcement and, and um, the private sector on these things. His observations probably be better than mine. I think there's a lot in the report, and, and but I think it comes down to the fact that there is an element of the guarding sector that well deserves the poor reputation and the lack of respect. Mm -hmm. And that comes down to selection of people, the training, their qualifications and their capabilities being low and reflected by the low pay. We can only increase the pay if we better select our people, better train them, give them greater capabilities and greater responsibilities. And that will hurt the bottom line of the clients. 
but we will get a better product at the end of the day. And I think of all the things in the report, that will be the hardest to achieve, is giving them a career structure with more money. Mm. I, I think my view is that the, the us and them mentality is gradually shifting. And I, I've been to a number of functions recently where senior police have acknowledged that there is expertise in the security industry that does not exist in the police force across a range of areas from the electronic side to the you know the personnel side so i think there's an acknowledgement that they're not the font of all of all things have to come from them so that's a an important first step but yep. certainly it's it, a lot of it's building trust and that takes time so it's not going to happen overnight but uh and the industry itself has to lift its act as well so we can't just think it's better it has to actually be better uh so th- practices have to improve across the board to uh to raise the standard overall but it's um as say from a positive note there's there's little signs and little you know indications that there's a, a shift in people's approach uh we just are lacking the next step which is trying to get the federal government to maybe give a little bit more impetus uh through coag uh which as you mentioned in 2008 there was a little bit of a of a momentum built up and then it it seemed to fizzle out so maybe 11 years on we might have a, a second wind and try and get a little bit of a because uh, uh, what we don't want to see is, is something terrible happen and, and that be the trigger for everyone to say, well, we now need to fix this. Um, we'd rather get ahead of the of the eight ball and actually get the problem resolved now and start fixing things now. Absolutely. There is no point planting saplings when you need shade. Gentlemen, if people would like to get a hold of a copy of this report, where can they find it? John, they can uh, just go to... Um our the Australian Strategic Policy Institute website, aspi.org.au, and um, just under look under publications, uh, you'll you'll find it. Or just uh, go to Dr Google and put in safety in numbers, Australian private security, guard force and counterterrorism. Uh, you'll find it. Thank you all very much. It's been fantastic having a chat, and we uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, John.